This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. This is Roger Stone, and we're back with the Roger Stone Show. This coming Tuesday, January 9th, is the 111th birthday of our 37th president, Richard Nixon, born in 1913. And we're going to kick off this segment with a little musical interlude. Joining us now for a celebration of the life of our 37th president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, is a woman who knew him well, Monica Crowley, uh, who served as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury uh, under President Donald Trump, but also served as a longtime aide to President Richard Nixon in his post-presidential years, joins us on The Roger Stone Show now. 
Monica, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. Thank you so much for having me on this very special occasion. As we have said, you know, talking about Richard Nixon, it's my favorite subject ever. So thank you for giving me, giving me the opportunity. The people always say to me, tell me something about Richard Nixon that I didn't know. Okay, here's one. Richard Nixon played the piano, the violin, uh, the uh, accordion, uh, the saxophone, and the clarinet. Yet he had had no musical training and he couldn't read music. Most people don't did, know that. Yeah, he did it all by ear and he was self-taught with so many things. Richard Nixon was self-taught. You know, he was a true intellectual. He was a brilliant, brilliant man, but he was a true intellectual. And he used to joke to me, Roger, he's like, well, don't tell too many people that because it'll kill my, my political appeal. But he truly was an intellectual. And that extended to all areas of the arts and music. He had a great appreciation for art. And and the musical piece was a really important one that he didn't show to a lot of people. Once in a while, he'd sit at a piano at an event and and play, and it would always blow people away because they had no idea. I just want to share with you a really special story regarding this issue about Nixon's innate musical abilities. So there was a period of time in the early to mid-1990s when I was working with him during the last years of his life when I became sick with mononucleosis. And so I was confined to my house for, I don't know, seven or ten days. And I was in central New Jersey. President Nixon's office and his residence was in northern New Jersey. So he decided after day five or six when I was no longer contagious but still very fatigued, he said, you know what, Monica, I'm going to grab my driver and I'm going to drive down and visit you. And I said, Mr. President, that is completely unnecessary. And he said, no, 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 I, I want to do it. I want to do it. And it was at a period of time, Roger, as you will recall, you know, for the, the final 20 years of his life, he continued to wage these Watergate battles. He had, you know, and it's very reminiscent of what we're experiencing now with President Trump. They exercised a lot of lawfare against Richard Nixon related to Watergate, and it lasted literally until the day he died. And he kept losing case after case um, because of these corrupt judges. And, and we started to see a corrupt legal system, as we are now really seeing with President Trump. But on the day he came to visit me at my home in central New Jersey, he happened to win one of the cases, and it was a really big case, Roger. It was a case that he had been fighting for, again, about 20 years at that point. And it was with regard to the fact that the government had impounded his personal papers and a lot of the presidential papers as part of their Watergate investigation. So Nixon countersued the U.S. government to say, wait a minute, these papers were my personal property and the government has withheld them from me for 20 years. He won that case and the ruling came down in his favor where the government had to uh, provide him rest uh, restitution for holding on to his personal property for 20 years. So we got a judgment of, as I recall, several million dollars. And he got the news while he was in my home, and he said, Monica, we've got to celebrate. And he walked over to my family piano, Roger, 
And he sat down and he played Happy Days Are Here Again. And he asked me to sing the lyrics along with him as he played. That is such a beautiful memory for me. And I'm so happy to be able to share it with you and this audience today. One of the other things people didn't know about him that is, is that he had a, a great uh, uh, wine cellar there in Saddle River. He had great knowledge and appreciation for great wine. I remember on one occasion, uh, I had put together a number of private meetings for him. He wanted to meet with younger reporters who had not been around to cover Watergate in these off-the-record dinners in which he talked mostly about foreign policy. But on one occasion, he asked me to bring uh, Margaret Tutwiler, who was the chief deputy to uh, Secretary of State James A. Baker, to dinner. Uh, and he asked me several times about the exact right wine. Ultimately, he chose a very rare and very expensive wine. Uh, and before dinner, he gave a long dissertation uh, about the history of this particular wine. Uh, now, the president, uh, by his own admission, uh, was uh, not a heavy drinker. Uh, and I found that he was never an individual who was retrospective. As he himself once said, always look forward, never look back. Uh, and therefore, in the many hours I spent with him, I had a hard time getting him to talk about some of the incredible historic events to which he had been a party. Very hard to get him to talk about John Kennedy or Dwight Eisenhower or Joe McCarthy uh, or the 1960 debate or being attacked by communist mobs in Venezuela. Except, however, after he had a cocktail or two, then he would become <laughs> loquacious and you would learn so much about history. He was particularly proud of his martini making skills. Uh, he referred to them as silver bullets. So when you would get uh, to six o'clock, uh, either in his home on the Upper East Side of New York or later in his home in Saddle River, New Jersey, uh, he would say to you, hey, do you feel like a civil bullet? And I said, certainly, Mr. President. Uh, and here was his recipe. Uh, he took a jar of olives. He drained it. He filled it with water. He replaced the cap. He shook it vigorously. He drained the water. Then he filled it with dry vermouth, and he had put it in the refrigerator. Uh, thinking ahead, as Nixon always did, he chilled a couple of martini glasses. They were already in the freezer. Splash them with water and throw them in the freezer. Then he took a, uh, a silver cocktail shaker. And he said, now this is very important. It must be a mixture of both cubed and cracked ice. Uh, he, in this case, we were drinking vodka, although generally speaking, he preferred gin. Uh, he covered the ice uh, in a high quality vodka. And then he shook vigorously for what appeared to me to be a long time. Then he removed the glasses from the freezer, poured in this concoction from the cocktail shaker. I point out, by the way, that so far he had added no vermouth. Uh, and then he took the jar out of the refrigerator and dropped in two olives. Now he pointed out to me, if there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini. Well, he said, that means you effed it up. 
uh, and it was superb. And I said, wow, Mr. President, that's a great martini recipe. And he said, yeah, I got it from Winston Churchill. Mm. Oh, I love that story. You know, I am not a big drinker and I've never been. And by the time I got to President Nixon, you know, you are correct. He was never a big drinker, but he was a wine connoisseur and he had a beautiful wine cellar. And by the time I got to him, he was in his mid to late 70s. And so he had unfortunately experienced the onset of a particular medical condition. And I can't recall what it is, Roger, but the doctors told him that he could it was genetic and that he could not have any more alcohol and so he was really bummed out uh, because he had this beautiful wine cellar and wasn't able to partake so one day he brought me down to the wine cellar and he said it's really unfortunate monica that i can't drink any of this beautiful wine because the collection was extraordinary roger he had like bottles given to him by charles de gaulle Right. That he had never had never drunk. And he said, I'm not going to be able to drink any of this. And then he pulled out a bottle of 1913 Lafitte Rothschild and he pulled it out and he showed it to me. And he said, Monica, this is my birth year, 1913 Lafitte Rothschild. And the the bottle at that time was worth, I don't know, maybe $100,000. And he said, Monica, the doctors tell me I can't drink wine, but I have news for them and for you. If I make it to my 100th birthday, I am opening this wine bottle (laughs) and I'm going to drink it. And I said, well, you better, Mr. President. First of all, you better last to 100 years old and then you better drink this. Uh, And we had a good laugh. He had given me a couple of bottles from his collection, um, which I still have because they were extraordinary gifts. I'll tell you, you know, because I wasn't a drinker, I, I would have maybe half a glass of wine from his collection at some of these dinners with journalists and heads of state. But when I would go over to the house on a regular afternoon to go over some things, he would say after five o'clock, he would say, Monica, I'm going to make you a gimlet. And so, Roger, while your special drink with Richard Nixon was a silver bullet martini, my special drink with him was a gimlet. And as you say, he really enjoyed gin. So it was gin with lime, a spot of lime. And I guess he thought that was an appropriate girly drink for me. And I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. And we used to share a gimlet together. Uh, Many people don't realize that in his post-presidential year, he remained uh, in touch with world leaders that he had known in some cases since his vice presidency, but certainly during his presidency. Uh, He would make trips uh, to both China and Russia in his 80s. But because he had suffered from phlebitis, it was very dangerous for him to sit in an airplane seat for hours on end. So in these transcontinental flights, he would walk up and down the aisle uh, of the plane on the instructions of his doctor. Uh, Recognize this is a man in his uh, advanced 80s, but still committed to world peace. Uh, I endeavored very hard to get him a meeting with Bill Clinton. Uh, He wanted to meet with Clinton, not for the status of it, because he he thought that things he had learned in both China and Russia uh, and his unique experience and outlook uh, on what was happening in those nations and the relationship to the United States 
uh, would be beneficial to the United States of America. He wanted to tell the chief executive. Uh, there were three meetings scheduled between Clinton uh, and Nixon, uh, and all three times at the last minute, those meetings would be canceled. Nixon privately blamed Hillary Clinton. She's a red hot, he used to say, which was a 1950s expression for those who were extreme liberals. Uh, and ultimately, not only did the meeting take place, but Nixon and Clinton really hit it off. Uh, they both came from poor backgrounds. They had both lost races for governor to make a comeback and be elected president. Uh, and they found common ground. Uh, Bill Clinton was also smart enough to know that if he received Richard Nixon and he received Richard Nixon's foreign policy advice, he was also buying himself immunity from any public criticism of his conduct of public affairs uh, from, uh, at that point, an esteemed uh, former president. Recently, Monica, I'm sure you saw this, there was an article in Politico uh, which talked about the fact that among younger conservatives, there is finally beginning to be some retrospective examination of the great accomplishments of Richard M. Nixon. Uh, the great tragedy of history is that when people like us who both revere and loved him say Nixon, people's response is, oh, Watergate. Uh, and there's so much more to the man. Uh, he negotiated a strategic arms limitation uh, with the Soviets. He skillfully got the Chinese out of the Soviet orbit, brought them in out of the cold. But it was at a time that China was a backwards, dirt poor, non-technical agrarian society. There was no way for Richard Nixon to know that 30 years later, the Bushes and the Clintons would give China most favored nation trading status. And in the case of Bill Clinton, that he would actually sell our most guarded military secrets, our missile targeting technology to the Chinese in return for illegal campaign contributions. He also desegregated the American public schools. He did away with the military draft. He gave us, gave us the 18-year-old vote. Uh, he began and launched the war on cancer. He gave us federal revenue sharing so that your tax dollars were, pay, were spent more effectively at the local level. And of course, we talked about this recently with the passing of Dr. Henry Kissinger. He unilaterally saved Israel from complete annihilation in the 1973 Yom Kippur War by airdropping $36 million worth of lethal aid to the Israelis who had their backs against the sea, were out of ammunition uh, after a surprise attack by the Egyptians and the Syrians. And he did so over the objections of Dr. Kissinger over the objections of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, over the objections of virtually everyone in his own national foreign policy apparatus. It was, in my opinion, perhaps one of Richard Nixon's greatest moments in public office. Yes, absolutely. And you just listed an extraordinary litany of achievements by this man. And there are so many more as well. 
But you know what? He used to say to me, Roger, that uh, very unfairly, history had a tendency to boil down presidencies to two things. And, of course, there's so much more. And, and we're talking about his presidency, but, it, of course, he was vice president for eight years under President Eisenhower. He served in the Senate. He served in the House. He had an extraordinary record of public service and tremendous achievements. You know, one of the things that um, that I always say when people ask me about President Nixon, they always say, what was he like? And I always lead off by saying that he was a true visionary in the sense that we've had a few visionaries as president, but it, it's rare to have that in a leader where he could see what the world was going to look like in 20 or 30 years down the road and then make American policy while in office to anticipate that world. I think you're correct that nobody could anticipate uh, that China would emerge as the kind of extreme adversary that it has. But Richard Nixon was nothing if not adaptable. And so he would have adapted his policy positions, his orientation toward Beijing to change with the times. And today he would be absolutely leading the charge against a hostile adversary in Beijing uh, committed to unrestricted warfare against the United States and the West. But getting back to what he's remembered for, you know, he used to say presidencies are unfairly boiled down to two things, one good and one bad. And he said, look, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he's known for civil rights and the war in Vietnam. Um, he said, in my case, it's going to be the opening to China as the good thing and Watergate as the bad thing. And he would say it's so unfortunate because we did so many other things. And, you know, now in retrospect, I think it's increasingly clear that Richard Nixon was perhaps the second uh, modern casualty of the deep state military industrial complex that needed to remove a president like him who was committed to peace. And you and I talked about this on my podcast, Roger, recently, that perhaps JFK was the first casualty because he did not want to engage with uh, any kind of escalation in Vietnam. So they removed him, eliminated him from the scene. Richard Nixon was uh, committed to withdrawing all troops from Vietnam and securing a peace with honor, which he did. These people in the deep state and military industrial complex and establishment and uni party Peace ain't profitable to them. War is the only way to go. And so a peacemaker, a peacemaker in office, like a JFK, like a Richard Nixon, like a Donald Trump, they cannot have that. So they need to wage war against that person until that person is weakened or can be neutralized and removed from the scene. So we're seeing the same cycle over and over again. And unfortunately, these presidents have no idea what's coming at them, right? Richard Nixon had no idea uh, what was being fed to him in terms of a setup with a Watergate burglary and then all of the bad information coming from people like John Dean and others who were feeding him bad information and therefore he would make bad decisions, leading ultimately to his resignation. Very unfair. I think now with the passage of time and with the perspective of a Donald Trump, we are getting to a more accurate and honest view about what actually happened to Richard Nixon.
Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Uh, Absolutely true. Recently declassified documents, which got almost no media coverage at all, other than a superb piece written by James Rosen of Newsmax for Real Clear Politics, show that the Central Intelligence Agency was well aware of the plan to break into the Watergate in advance and that they actually infiltrated the Watergate burglar team to keep tabs on that operation and also to tip off the D.C. police who were waiting for the burglars. It's also very important to point out that there is no evidence whatsoever that Richard Nixon knew about or approved uh, the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. Uh, In fact, uh, is recorded in Bob Haldeman's uh, biography and also recorded in his diaries. Nixon was shocked because there was no good reason, no political reason to break into the Watergate. He was leading in the polls in 49 states. He was on the cusp of winning the greatest presidential electoral victory in American history. And he was also savvy enough about American politics that he knew there was nothing of value, no information of value to be had at the Democratic National Committee. Uh, there is very little question. If you read Haldeman's diaries, Nixon was on the verge of reorganizing the national security apparatus. He was committed to taking power away from the Central Intelligence Agency and other unelected bureaucrats. He posed an existential threat uh, to the military industrial complex. The same people that I argue took down John F. Kennedy in a much bloodier fashion, uh, removed Richard Nixon in a silent coup. Uh, And when you examine Watergate, uh, it pales in comparison of the efforts by Barack Obama and Joe Biden to use the full legal authority of the United States government, utilizing evidence that they knew was fabricated, the Steele dossier and the false claim that the Democratic National Committee had been the victim of an online hack by the Russians to justify an illegal and illegitimate effort to bring down a duly elected president. The same people who murdered President John F. Kennedy, the same institutions that took down Richard Nixon, the same folks who attempted to assassinate and then remove President Ronald Reagan uh, in Iran-Contra are the same institutional forces uh, that ginned up the phony Russian collusion hoax and also ran two phony impeachments against Donald Trump. Uh, it is. Uh, I did a long podcast on human events with Jack Posobiec this past week, uh, laying a lot of this out. Uh, what's amazing is the American people have no curiosity about Watergate. They just buy the completely fraudulent Woodward and Bernstein uh, narrative of events, uh, and they just buy it without reservation, 
and so much of it uh, is not true. I am really glad that Richard Nixon is finally starting to get his historical due in terms of an extraordinarily successful presidency. Yes, I completely agree with you. Nothing makes me happier. And I've got to tell you, Roger, when he passed away in 1994, I'd spent the previous four years working with him and uh, so closely. And when he passed away, Bill Sapphire, who had been a tough speechwriter in his White House and at the time then was writing weekly columns for The New York Times, he invited me to come and talk to him in Washington. And I sat down. We were having some lunch at the Navy Club in D.C., Army Navy Club. And he said, well, kid, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I am uh, I'm not quite sure, Mr. Sapphire. And then sort of off the cuff, Roger, I mentioned that I had been keeping a daily diary in which I was reconstructing every conversation I ever had with Richard Nixon over the course of four years. And I'll never forget, Sapphire put down his spoon and he looked at me. He said, what? And I I repeated it. And he said, well, kid, I know what you're going to do now. He said, you're going to write a book because future generations need to know the Richard Nixon that you came to know in his final years when he would be as complete a person as possible. And when I said, well, I don't want to violate any any confidentiality that I had with him or betray him and his confidences in any way, uh, now that he's gone, Sapphire said to me, you know what, kid? He said, the reason you were there is because he, he knew you were brilliant and he knew that you were taking notes in every conversation and he wanted you to do this to speak when he could no longer speak and to let future generations know the kind of man and leader that he was. And so I very proudly wrote two volumes, Nixon Off the Record and Nixon in Winter. They're still available on Amazon. Please go find them and and read them. I am so proud of those books because I told the truth about the man he really was and not the caricature presented by the left-wing propaganda press, left-wing historians by the culture in movies like Nixon by Oliver Stone and the rest of it. Roger, I wanted to stand up and tell the rest of the world exactly the kind of person and man Richard Nixon was. He was an extraordinary human being. He was brilliant, of course. He was a true intellectual and a visionary, as I said. But he was also a good man on top of being a great man. He was a good man. He was kind and generous and giving and caring and compassionate and very funny, which most people did not know. And I used to say, Mr. President, why didn't you show this to the American people more? Not that it would have saved his skin in Watergate, but it would have bought him some more goodwill. I think, you know, when the when the crap inevitably hits the fan. And he said, look, I was a, a serious man with a seriousness of purpose. Um, but he could be very funny, had a wonderful self-effacing sense of humor, just a good and decent human being. And it breaks my heart to this day what they did to him, as it breaks my heart what they are trying to do with Donald Trump. But, you know, Nixon used to say uh, when people would ask him, how is history going to remember you? He would say, well, it depends who writes the history. And so I am very proud to have written two volumes of history that actually tells the truth about who he was and what he did. Uh, It was Richard Nixon who said the greatness comes not when things go always good for you, but when you take some knocks, you suffer some defeats when sadness comes. 
because it is only when one has been in the deepest valley that one can appreciate the majesty of the highest mountaintop. Monica Crowley, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Tell us quickly where people can see or hear your podcast. Yes, thank you so much, Roger. It's called the Monica Crowley Podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. so Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. And I want to thank you, Roger, because you joined me for my Thanksgiving uh, holiday show where we deconstructed a lot of this with regard to President Nixon, but we really did a deep dive on the Kennedy assassination. And I have to tell you, Roger, that that show, I just got my ratings from Labor Day through the end of the year, and that show was my highest rated show. And had the most downloads. So I appreciate you, Roger, for that. Please, everybody, go check out my podcast. Subscribe. It's free uh, and it will automatically download to your phone with every new show. I do it a couple of times a week and we've got a big year ahead of us. So please check that out. Also on social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore and Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley. All right. Happy birthday, Richard M. Nixon, 111 years old this coming Tuesday, January 9th. Monica Crowley, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Always a pleasure, Roger. Thank you.